If you have your Bibles, please join me in 1 Samuel chapter 3. I want to take time this evening as we conclude what we have emphasized beginning on Friday night, just talking to parents. And I think some collateral damage in talking to parents is talking to kids. And in talking to parents and in acknowledging kids, we're roping in grandparents because they've raised kids and now they are nurturing grandkids. And we never stop parenting and we never stop tending that garden and we never stop working at it. It's all relational. And as I said in Sunday school this morning, sometimes our fragile egos are helped Not when we have to pursue an example of excellence within Scripture that makes us feel like dirty, rotten scoundrels. But it's a little more encouraging to our fragile egos when we look at people who blew it and the exhortation for us is don't do that. It's a little more attainable. It helps our fragile egos to think that we could do it. And I just want to share what I think could probably be two or three messages, and aren't you glad that it's only one? Lessons learned from bad parents. Lessons learned from bad parents in the scripture. And I want to just take three separate situations and just give you some principles as parents. And I know that the last principle ropes in every grandparent regardless of age in the room. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we're diving into the midst of a great Bible story again. It's one that I know you are familiar with. At this point in time, Samuel is being spoken to, and he does not know who is speaking to him. In verse 9, Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever, For the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore have I sworn unto the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. And I doubt that Samuel slept well. In fact, even the language says, and Samuel lay until the morning, and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here am I. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. And Samuel told him every wit and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him Good. That's a tragic passage of Scripture. That's a painful passage of Scripture to read. 
It is within this moment that I can say to you and try to encourage your hearts, parenting is hard. Every stage of parenting is hard. I thought it was hard when we had to stay up into the night. Now I know that when your child lives 100 miles away, it's hard. I thought it was hard when she was two and when she was eight and when she was 16 and learning to drive, and now she's rounding the corner to 20, and I think, this is not easy. There are still decisions to make and valleys to navigate and mountaintops to ascend. Parenting is hard. I thought it humorous. I saw someone wrote, my seven-year-old daughter asked me twice today, Mommy, what poison kills someone the fastest? She said, and now I'm wondering if I've underestimated my daughter. Really just asking about poison? Are you looking to take me out, child? Because some parents have blown it to that degree, and that's the segment that I want to talk about just for a moment this evening. No matter how you slice it, parents are important, and parenting is hard. Perhaps you have a goal in mind in parenting. Maybe your goal in mind is to have well-behaved kids. That's a noble goal. Maybe your goal is to have children who are educated and can someday make money. That's a noble goal. Maybe you just want to produce good American citizens. That's a noble goal. Maybe your hope is that they come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and serve the Lord with their life. That's a noble goal. But every time we communicate a goal, we have to attach a plan and work with it. No matter how you slice it, parenting is work. As I dig through this, I find a few simple foundational principles within Scripture. And I want to just outline them for you. And I'll begin here in Eli's home with this principle for every parent. Don't honor your kids above God. Don't honor your kids above God. Now, you might be scratching your head and saying, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Well, I'm giving you the principle first, and I want to teach you what's behind it now. We catch our first glimpse of a looming family disaster in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Just after Hannah and her husband turn over little Samuel to serve under Eli, the Bible pulls back the curtain just a little bit and reveals terrible corruption to us. In 1 Samuel 2.12, here is what we read, and the Bible cannot be any more clear than this. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, get this, if you don't know what that means, they knew not the Lord. How is that possible? Eli is the priest, and his sons know not the Lord. Eli did the work of the Lord, yet his sons, according to Scripture, are sons of Belial. That means that they managed the things of God but they did not know God. It's possible. That means that they talked about God, but they did not care about God. That means that they could find their place in the word of God, but they did not listen to God's word. That means that they could lead people in the worship of God, but they did not love God. I think if we were there, people would have said that the sons of Eli were important to God. After all, look at their position. And yet God says to us that the sons of Eli were worthless to his cause. Now it's going to expound a little bit further on why that would be in 1 Samuel 2, 22. We read this. 
Now, Eli was very old and heard, he's now culpable, heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the uh, congregation. Now, listen, I'd rather not even talk about this. I certainly won't go into detail in a setting like this. But the question that I automatically ask when I read this is, where was Eli? The question that I must ask is, if Eli heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, I ask, Eli, where were you? Well, I'm old. Well, I'm busy. Well, I'm serving. I don't care Where were you when your sons were doing this tragic activity? You'll discover within Scripture that Eli was there all along. The reality is he wasn't powerless. He could have defrocked them. He could have taken away the office of the priesthood from them. Yet he enabled them to stay in a place of service. According to the Old Testament law, the reality is he could have had them stoned to death before the elders for their mockery of God and his law. You say, well, that's extreme, but that was adherence to the law of God for the treacherous behavior that his sons were carrying out. I'm just saying he had options. The truth is, Eli closed his eyes. He consistently refused to discipline his sons even when he was made aware of their egregious activity. As I look at that, I think to myself, You're saying that Eli refused to consistently discipline his sons? No, I'm saying Eli refused to discipline his sons consistently. What? I think sometimes we're put under pressure, right? Let me just say this. Consistency and parenting should never go together in the same sentence. Because we are faulty by nature, we're going to be inconsistent. I say this, I believe this, it's not a matter of how much we are, or, or whether or not we're going to warp our kids by our imperfect parenting. It's just a matter of to what degree are we going to warp our kids by our imperfect parenting. I know that my daughter turning 20 and my son turning 18 this year do not have a perfect dad and do not have a legacy of being in a home where no parental mistake has ever been made. I'm not saying you have to be consistent across the board because kids are incredibly subjective. You found that to be true? No two kids, even in the same home, are the same. My daughter, honestly, I could step in her room, I could make eye contact with her, and she could break down crying. You know, I know, Dad, I'm sorry. I was wrong. My son would require an entirely different approach. You know how that works. Eli, the point is, just refused to step in on his kids. He never really tried. Perhaps he said something like, well, you know, boys will be boys. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13, where God says, I have told him that I will judge his house forever. Why? Because he restrained not his sons when they were vile. The word restrain that is used there could be understood to confront, to confront his sons. They were carrying out vile activity and he refused to confront them. 
It's the same idea given to every father in Ephesians 6, 4. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There are times where they need confrontation. Admonition there is the same idea as rebuke them. Instructing a child means confronting vile behavior, confronting bad behavior, confronting sin, restraining evil, challenging disobedience. I don't have the guts for it. Find it. The fact is, you and I as parents have to be willing to set the standard, communicate it, enforce the standard, model the standard, confront it when it is violated, and confess when we ourselves fail to meet it. But restraint is an important thing. Three times God sent a message to Eli that he was failing to model biblical manhood, and all three times Eli responded by covering his ears and closing his eyes. He just did Nothing. And the key to me is found in 1 Samuel 2.29, where we read this, Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in mine habitation, and why did you honor your sons above me? Don't honor your kids above God. That's a great sin for parents to regard their children more than they do God. And you say, well, what does that mean? That we should go to church more than be with our kids? No, it means more than concerning yourselves with your kids' emotions and feelings, you should concern yourself with God's word and mandate. Don't honor your kids more than you honor God. A number of years ago, a member of the royal family visited America for the first time. Upon returning to London after the visit, a reporter asked him to name the most amazing thing that he saw in America. And without hesitation, he said this, the way the parents obey their children. That's the most amazing thing to me about America, the way the parents obey their children, overindulgent parents who allow their children to rule the roost, ultimately pay the price. This came from a child psychologist. Anxious parents are hyper-attentive to their kids, reactive to every blip of their child's day, eager to solve every problem for their child and believe that's good parenting. If you have an infant and that baby has gas, burping the baby is being a good parent. But when you have a 10-year-old who has metaphoric gas, you don't have to burp him. You have to let him sit with it, try to figure it out, and what to do about it. He then learns to tolerate moderate amounts of difficulty, and it's not the end of the world. There's another book called A Nation of Wimps. Today has been watching a disturbing trend. Kids are growing up to be wimps. That's what the book says. Don't get mad at me. They can't make their own decisions, cope with anxiety, or handle difficult emotions without going off the deep end. Teens lack leadership skills. College students engage in deadly binge drinking. Graduates can't even negotiate their own salaries without bringing in mom or dad for a consult. Why? Because hothouse parents raise teacup children, brittle and breakable instead of strong and resilient. This crisis threatens to destroy the fabric of our society, to undermine both our democracy and economy. Parents are going to ludicrous lengths to take the lumps and bumps out of life for their children. But the net effect of parental hyperconcern and scrutiny is to make kids more fragile. When the real world isn't the discomfort-free zone kids are accustomed to, they break down. Thus a nation of wimps. What Eli did was refuse to restrain his sons. 
Even though God told him to step in, he closed his eyes and he covered his ears and he did nothing because he did not want to disrupt the lives of his children. And in doing so, he made his sons little G gods in his life and he honored those little G gods over God in heaven. That is a parental mistake. Don't honor your kids more than you honor God's word. Second principle that I find is this. It could be tied directly to Eli who did not restrain his sons, but I believe a more clear example is found with David and Adonijah. Don't be afraid to displease your kids. Now, let me say this. Be afraid to displease me. I'm just throwing that out there. Please try to make me happy. But don't be afraid to displease your kids. Take your Bibles and go over to 1 Kings chapter 1. We'll bounce around just a little bit. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we are going to be introduced to Adonijah, the son of Haggith. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, in verse 5, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Now, I want you to listen to the second part of verse 5, and I want you to think of another moment in time where we read these same statistics. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now, Adonijah is David's little boy, the son of Haggith. And he is exalting himself, saying, I will be king, and he chooses the exact same numeric formula that Absalom, his brother, chose. He probably should have learned from history that this doesn't end very well. We'll get to Absalom in a moment. If you're wondering what would drive a young man like Adonijah to try to dethrone his father and wreak havoc in the kingdom, verse 6 will shed light on that in 1 Kings 1. And his father, that is David, had not displeased him at any time, saying, Why hast thou done so? And then get this phrase. And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Solomon. The Bible's just giving us reasons why David never displeased his son. You would have hated to be around Adonijah. Adonijah was not the kind of guy you would have wanted to be friends with because Adonijah was never told no. Adonijah always got what he wanted, and according to the scripture, he was a goodly man, which I referenced on our getaway. That means... Plainly, this was a good-looking guy. I'm not saying it to be too flippant or silly, but if Adonijah, the son of the king, were to walk into this room, all of us would be like, uh, that guy's working with a different set of genetics than I am. That guy walks a little different. He's built a little different. He looks a little different. He talks a little different. That's a regal guy right there. And oh, by the way, he knew it. He knew it. Nobody displeased Adonijah. He was Adonijah. Oh, he was also born after Absalom. He's a good-looking guy. And he tries to exalt himself to be king because daddy never displeased him. I can assure you, if you take the time to read it, everything that happens in 1 Kings chapter 1 is either directly or indirectly related to that one heavy verse that his father had not displeased him at any time. This is the classic absent father. A father who refused to exercise authority over the child, but rather the child was exercising authority over his father. Absalom has the same problem. We'll get there. But also Adonijah. David was either pampering them or he was ignoring them. 
David never got in Adonijah's way. He never challenged him. He never disciplined him. One author said somewhere and in some way, with every major social problem in America, a father has failed to give leadership to his family. The deterioration of our culture has accelerated dramatically because fathers who are unwilling to lead are now in the majority. David just refused to lead. David surrendered the ability to say no to Adonijah. He just let Adonijah run recklessly. And so we find Adonijah holding a coronation for himself. But Adonijah fails in his revolution. Long story short, David has promised that Solomon will be king. David is currently on his deathbed. Adonijah, legally speaking, born after Absalom, who is no longer around, should be the one for the throne. And again, he knows it. And he's influential enough, and he's good-looking enough, and he's charismatic enough to get some people to agree with him. And dad, David, is now nigh unto death on his deathbed. He's frail, and he's sick, and Adonijah knows this is the time to strike Because what's dad going to do anyways? And once I coronate myself as king, I'm going to take Solomon out. And I'm taking Bathsheba out. And Haggith gets to be the queen mother. I'm going to get my way because that's all that I've ever known. So Adonijah goes down to the serpent's rock and he holds a coronation for himself in hiding. What a brave guy. And then like a dummy, like a historic moron, he begins to parade himself as the new king with the exact same number of chariots, horsemen, and footmen as Absalom did, which is shocking, who also held a coup against his father. Do we get the idea David wasn't on top of things? King, couple of coups from within the house, probably not doing a good job. Now, Nathan the prophet, you may remember him, hears that Adonijah has coronated himself. He gets with Bathsheba, and he says, Bathsheba, maybe he called her Bath. I don't know. That's what initially got her in trouble, so he probably didn't. Bathsheba, we have an issue. Adonijah has coronated himself king, and I don't think David knows about it. And so the Bible says in 1 Kings 1.11, Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign? And David, our Lord, knoweth it not. Now, that's not really strange that David doesn't know what Adonijah is doing. That's the norm. And they concoct a plan. Here's the plan in 1 Kings 1, 12. Now, therefore, come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon, because if Adonijah stays king, you are dead meat. So here's Nathan's plan. Go and get thee in unto King David and say unto him, Didst not thou, my lord, O king, swear unto thy handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then doth Adonijah reign? And then listen to Nathan. Behold, while thou yet talkest there with the king, I'll come in after thee and confirm thy words. This is the little plan they're hatching. Bathsheba, you go in. You rouse him awake. You whisper to him in his ear. Honey, can I ask you a question? Didn't you promise me that Solomon would sit on the throne in your stead? 
And he's going to say, well, yes, I promised you that. Then you ask him, why then does Adonijah reign? Now, at this point, he may prop up on an elbow and look at you and say, what are you talking about? And that moment is when I'll burst into the room and confirm your words and say, David, Adonijah reigns on the throne, and you promised this to Solomon. Practically speaking, Nathan and Bathsheba are banking on one major hope. They are banking on something that David has never done before. They're hoping for the first time ever he tells Adonijah, no. You ever been around a kid and you as an external parent are desperate to tell them no because their parents won't? You just want to look at them without their parents looking like, no. That's Nathan the prophet here. Nathan wants David to deal with this. Long story short, I wish we had time to tell the story. David upholds his promise to Solomon and he follows through. Now Solomon, who's aware of this whole situation, puts together a collection of 3,000 Proverbs. Let me just read some of these Proverbs to you and understand that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also that he was empowered by his life experience. Proverbs 13, 24, he that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him, chasteneth him betimes. Proverbs 19, 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother. And maybe in parentheses he wrote haggeth to shame. Proverbs 29, 17, correct thy son and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Where did Solomon get this bank account of life experience? Perhaps from a couple of coups that happened in his home. David never displeased Adonijah. And I want you to know this. Displeasing our kids does not come easy or natural. I love my kids. I love being a dad to my kids. I wish that I could give my kids everything that they ever wanted. I mean in a gross, spoil them rotten kind of way. I really wish I could. I wish each of my children were millionaires. I almost said missionaries. Maybe that'll happen. Probably that much faster than millionaires. I wish they were millionaires so they could take care of me. I wish I had millions to give to them. I'm not saying it's easy to displease our kids. My, my daughter, gorgeous, gorgeous, big blue eyes, ringlets of, of gold hair when she was little, the most perfect round little cheeks in all the world. It was told to me that this was literally the most beautiful child on earth. My wife told me that, but I, it was told to me that that was the most beautiful child in all the earth. And on occasion, she would do things that she should not do. And I would look at her, and I would see those big saucer blue eyes and those ringlets of gold, and I would think, honey, you better deal with this because I am powerless against that. I don't want to displease. Listen, I'm not saying you revel in displeasing. I think there's something probably a little twisted or crooked when we revel in the displeasing, but it is necessitated that we displease, that we chase the foolishness from them. And David chose the course and the path of least resistance. Don't be afraid to displease your children. 
Don't honor your kids above God. Don't be afraid to displease your children. I'm not just coming up with principles from life experience. I'm just extracting the wording of scripture and giving it to you as a principle. Here's some lessons learned from bad parenting. Eli honored his sons above God. Don't do that. David refused to ever displease Adonijah. Don't do that. And then I want you to grasp this. Be willing to humbly confess when you make a mistake as a parent. Absalom is one of those Bible characters that breaks my heart. He breaks David's heart as well. I won't go into detail, but Amnon carries out a tragic, violent sin against Tamar. And when the word gets back to Daddy David of this egregious, wicked, vulgar, vile thing that Amnon has done, here's what the Bible says was David's reaction in 2 Samuel 13, 21. But when the king heard of all these things, get this, he was very wroth. That's it. David heard about it. He heard what Amnon did, and he was very wroth. The Septuagint, which is an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, has this additional phrase in there to just amplify verse 21. He would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son, and he loved him. Again, Amnon is the one for the throne. He's the heir apparent. This pandering passive, indulgent father could not raise his hand against his son because he was guilty of what Eli was guilty of. David's got some sons in line for the throne. Just get this in your mind. Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah. Ooh, there's some real sad stories in there. Amnon is dealt with as Absalom carries out vigilante justice. Now, I'm not excusing what Absalom has done in no way, shape, or form. But when dad David hears that Amnon has done what he's done to Tamar and Absalom's got this awareness of this situation, he's probably standing there going, dad, you got this, right? Dad, you're going to step in on this, right? No. So Absalom goes to his sister Tamar and he says to her, I've got this since dad doesn't. And he carries out vigilante justice. In 2 Samuel 13, 28, you can listen. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. So Absalom, carrying out vigilante justice, says to his servants, his, his entourage, when Amnon is drunk at this dinner party, and I give you the signal, smite him and kill him. Don't be afraid to kill him. I've commanded you. Don't worry about the law. There is no law. Don't worry about my dad. He's passive. When I say to you, kill him, kill him. When they kill him, all the king's sons flee. Now something stands out to me. The Bible says every one of them got on his mule and ran away. Wouldn't you think the king's sons would have like cool horses or something? Like get on your mule. Aren't you David's kids? Don't you have like a palace? Shouldn't you have like a stallion? Like a fast horse? Shouldn't you have a horse with like braided hair? 
some, a mule, and then I just can't picture the mule really like a getaway. Like, get on the mule, go. Like, I can catch you if I jog. You're on a mule. Where are you running, man? Now, I can get lost in those kind of details, and I apologize for that. But the Bible is a book that's alive, and we can't strip the humanity out of it. Absalom can't come back to Jerusalem, so he flees. Where does he flee to? He goes, and we'll read this in 2 Samuel 13, 37, but Absalom fled, and he went to Talmai, the son of Amahad, king of Geshur. Now, I want you to hear this. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of David longed to go forth unto Absalom. For he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Now, I'm going to hurry it up. Absalom is in Gesher. David is in Jerusalem. Absalom has been in Gesher for three years. David is now fully aware of how Amnon was killed. And the Bible says this to us. David's soul, his heart, longed to go to his son Absalom. He wanted Absalom back. He knew that he had blown it. He knew that Absalom had done wrong. All he needed to do was either punish Absalom or confess that you didn't do what you should have done with Amnon. But he chose to do nothing. For three years, he chose to do nothing. Three years, he doesn't go get Absalom and make it right. And then we read this, and there came a messenger to David. This is the most tragic as I try to skip ahead saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, and we shall escape Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. Absalom takes the kingdom from David. We know this. How does Absalom get to the place where he takes the kingdom from David? How does he get from three years... Of, 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 of time in Gesher, all David had to do, everybody in the world was afraid of David. David could have gone to Talmai and he could have said, either you give me my son Absalom back or I'm burning Gesher to the ground. And they would have given Absalom up. Nobody wanted any part of David. David could have just sent Joab, which he eventually does. Nobody wanted any part of Joab. Joab, go get Absalom. Absalom is brought back to, to Jerusalem. And when Absalom gets back to Jerusalem, David does nothing. It results in Absalom stripping the kingdom away from his father. It's stunning to me. Why did David do nothing? The Bible says to us, so Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn into his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Now just stay with me. Let's do the math. We know Absalom strips the kingdom from his dad. How does he get there? He's dealt with the problem that was Amnon because David wouldn't deal with it. David would not displease Adonijah. David won't get things right with Absalom in the kingdom of Gesher for three years. The people want Absalom back. David's heart is yearning for him. Joab comes to him, and David says, Joab, go and get him from Gesher and bring him back. Do not bring him into the palace. You take him to his house. Do not let him see my face. What is going on? He gets him back to Jerusalem, and the Bible tells us Absalom is back in Jerusalem for two whole years, and he doesn't get to see the king. Two years, and he's trying to see his dad. For two years, Absalom's trying to see his dad. 2 Samuel 14, 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. 
Now, we've just changed gears, and you didn't know it. Absalom was once calling him father, and David once called Absalom son. His heart yearned for his son. But now that he's been three years in Gesher, and he's two years in Jerusalem, it's now he's saying, I'm not able to see the king's face. Two years he's there. Now, Absalom's a bad boy. (laughs) And the Bible tells us, that, that the king said unto Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again in, in 2 Samuel 14, 21. Bring the young man Absalom again. He's no longer saying, I yearn for my son. It's gotten so cold and indifferent that he just calls him the young man. It's no longer his dad. It's gotten so cold and indifferent that it's just the king. This is broken relationship. Somebody's got to be a bridge to get this right. And let me say this, it isn't Absalom. It's Daddy David that should get this right. You know what Absalom tries to do to get it right? Absalom doesn't think real clear. Absalom's pretty brash. I mean, we know this. He's carried out murder on his half-brother Amnon. Here's Absalom's plan. All right, I need to get my dad's attention. I need to get my dad's attention. I know what I'll do. I'll set Joab's field on fire. Well, that's dumb because Joab's a killer himself. Abner and Amasa, Joab dispatches them quickly. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Samuel 14, 29. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore, he said unto his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. Now, I wouldn't want to be one of Absalom's servants, but it's probably fun, more fun than being others. You just set things on fire, kill people. I mean, you can do what you want. He sets Joab's barley field on fire, and that does work. Joab pays attention to that. He comes to Absalom's house, and he says, Hey, man, why'd you set my field on fire? Because you won't come and visit me, and I just want to see the king. Well, you didn't have to burn my barley field to get to go see the king, but you can go see the king. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 14, 33, something that is painful to read, and you may want to turn there just to see it. You say, man, you are covering a lot of ground. I told you it should be three sermons, and I'm doing it in one. And the Bible tells us, and I, I, I switched that wrong. Let me just say this to you, that he gets before the king, and the Bible just simply says that David kissed him, and that was it. Not a warm kiss, it's a cold kiss. Nothing is really accomplished in this situation between David and Absalom. And the Bible will tell us in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 1, right after that interaction between David and Absalom, where they come back together, finally after five years, they're face to face, and David doesn't remedy the situation. It's at that point that Absalom carries out the coup. And after Absalom carries out the coup, Their relationship is fractured forever. Amnon, dead. Adonijah, dead. Absalom deserves death. And do you hear David plead with Joab when he says to him, listen to me, Joab. Joab, you listen to me clearly. You find that boy, Absalom. Do not hurt him. Do not kill him. Why would David yearn to have Absalom left alive and not killed? He knows this blood is on his hands. 
He's gotten so cold and indifferent towards his son that he didn't even see him for five years. David, had you dealt with Amnon? Had you punished Absalom? Had you said sorry, you blew it? Had you just been a bridge at any point in time? This could have been fixed, but it's cold and indifferent. And he's looking at Joab and he says to him, Joab, don't touch him. You remember when David confessed in Psalm 51 and he said, I will teach transgressors thy way. Really, David? What about Absalom? Will you teach your son? Will you teach your son how to confess and how to come back? You know the story as Absalom, who was another handsome son of the king, is riding through the thicket. His hair is caught in the tree, and he's dangling there as his beast comes out from under him. Around the corner comes Joab, eye to eye. Absalom knows he's not a dummy. He's not a fool. Hanging in the tree, three darts. Absalom is dispatched. It's over. Bleeds out, hanging in a tree by his hair. Word gets back to dad. Hey, uh, had an engagement out there on the battlefield, and Absalom didn't make it. And if you remember, the last time they were together, David simply said, go get the young man. Now, I want you to allow that moment to ring in your ears as we read this in 2 Samuel 18, 33. Upon hearing the news that Absalom was dead, the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, uh, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son My son, for years, David had refused to see Absalom's face. For years. For years, he had allowed the coldness and the indifference to become merely the young man. And now that it's too late, five times in one verse, he says, my son. My son. My son. My son. My son. Sorry, David. I'm not being crass or cold. It's too late. He can't hear you. Why would he cry out with such anguish? Would God I had died instead of you? Because he knew if all he'd have done was go to Gesher and get him back and say, hey man, I was wrong with the Amnon thing, but you were wrong with carrying out vigilante justice. Or he could have said, I'm sorry. Or he could have punished. He could have done something, anything, but he did nothing. And he doesn't realize how important Absalom was until it's too late. And I'll simply say this, David's mourning not just for the death of his son, but for the loss that he feels because he failed to be a father. He's discovering it too late. Can I say this is where you rope the grandparents in? You say, well, yeah, my kid's in his 50s or 60s. Yeah, and you you and I both know that there's a lot of relationships in good churches like this where there's coldness and indifference between full-grown adult kids and parents. You say, well, my son's old enough to know better. David should have been the bridge, not Absalom. David should have been the bridge. And it could be that proud dads who've always done it right and been hard maybe need to get a phone call to one of their kids and say, I didn't do everything right. I want you to know that I love you. I want to be a bridge because I don't want to be guilty of being too proud to acknowledge that I did something wrong. What are some lessons we can learn from bad parents? Don't honor your kids above God. Don't be afraid to displease your kids. And don't be afraid to humbly confess 
when you do something wrong. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? The story of the prodigal son comes to mind. And in the story of the prodigal son, the the prodigal son could not have done more to embarrass the father. But the father waits and waits and waits and waits. And you know that when he crests the hill, the father leaves the porch and sprints to his child and hugs his neck. Really doesn't even allow him to give his practiced speech. He just throws a feast for him. It's extravagant grace. Kids need extravagant grace from moms and dads. Can I just say this and then I'll conclude in prayer and ask pastor to come. Don't honor your kids above God and his word. Don't be afraid to displease your kids. Be afraid to not. And don't be afraid to humbly confess and say sorry when you've done it wrong. Heavenly Father, may we honor you now in the few moments we have remaining. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name.